the battle for Ukraine enters a new phase. Is it the beginning of the end for Vladimir Putin, or just the end of the beginning of war crimes and crimes against humanity? Joining us today to talk about Russia, Ukraine, and the Middle East, scholar, strategist, and former State Department senior counselor, Elliot Cohen. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. And welcome back to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Jared, uh, we are coming up on Pesach. Any fun uh, memories uh, you have uh, growing up? Uh, Where does this rank in your holiday rankings for the year? So Pesach is by far and away my favorite holiday of the year. Uh, My wife thinks I'm crazy because I can't can't eat bread. But for me, it is both one of the defining stories of our people and the most American of Jewish holidays. Um, And there are lots of parallels there. And and the the emphasis on bringing from one generation to another into the story, into this fold. I sat with my kids last night and went over the Haggadot and and sort of in all its different versions, it it really, it gets me going. Uh, And it's, it's, it's my favorite. It is the most meaningful holiday for me as well. I will say Hanukkah is my favorite, uh, but Pesach, my most meaningful holiday. Uh, I would not be here today without uh, Pesach, without a Passover Seder. My grandfather of blessed memory, who was a refugee from Germany on the kinder transport and joined the British Army to fight to liberate his family, had uh, been injured at the front and been sent on convalescence leave to Edinburgh, Scotland. Uh, and it was there that he was invited uh, to a home of people he didn't know uh, as a German refugee in the British military, now in a foreign land. And he fell in love with a woman across the table in her own uniform. And that was the first night of Passover. They were married on Lagba Omer. My father was born the following year. And so uh, we think about that moment and the importance in our lives and my family uh, and really think about the message Uh, that in every generation we do understand, we do picture ourselves in slavery, that we were slaves, that every generation there are those that rise up to do us harm. Uh, And as Americans, as patriots, as Jews, uh, we take that resolve with us every day of our lives to fight back, to stand up, to do right. Amen. Amen. Okay, we have an incredible guest today. We're going to get into a lot of those issues. We may even talk about that Scottish heritage We are joined today by Elliot Cohen, who is the Robert E. Osgood Professor at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, SICE, where he has taught since 1990. Go Jays! Okay, okay, we got it. Calm down, calm down, Jared. Calm down, calm down. He served as Dean of SICE from 2019 to 2021. Cohen received his BA and PhD degrees from Harvard University, and after teaching there and at the Naval War College, founded the Strategic Studies Program at SICE. His books include The Big Stick, Conquered into Liberty, and Supreme Command. He's been an Army Reserve Officer, member of the Defense Policy Advisory Board, and member of the National Security Advisory Panel of the National Intelligence Council. In addition to public service in the Department of Defense, he served as Counselor for the Department of State from 2007 to 2009. He writes frequently for major newspapers and as a contributing writer at the Atlantic. Dr. Cohen, welcome to the podcast. Well, it's good to be with you. Well, you we want to, I think, start in Ukraine. That is the uh, the news du jour, of course, every day so far in the last few weeks. At this point in the war, what does winning look like for Ukraine, in your view? Well, uh, 
I think it's pretty clear. Winning looks like uh, obviously retaining its freedom and independence, but also its in territorial integrity, I would say, at least up to the line of contact on February 23rd. Um, I mean, obviously, it's coming at a terrible, terrible cost in human life and uh, physical destruction. Um, but that would be that would be success. Um, you know, you can imagine outcomes where they accept some sort of loss of territory, but I somehow don't feel that that's particularly likely, given where the Ukrainians are right now. So, Dr. Cohen, we see uh, Putin redeploying his forces from the north to the east. Uh, what do we think the next moves are for Putin, and and what does winning look like for him? So, uh, you know, it's quite remarkable. This has been a very short, although very bloody, war, and we're now looking at the fourth phase. In the first phase, uh, the Russians thought that they would be able to overthrow the Zelensky government. It would all be wrapped up in three days, and there'd be a victory parade in uh, Kiev. In the second phase, I think they thought they could really take the eastern half of the country by force, including Kiev. Um, they were defeated in that. This, uh, the third phase, which is coming to an end, was one of withdrawal. And now it looks like what they're going to try to do is see if they can defeat the bulk of Ukrainian forces in the southeastern part of the country and kind of rip off uh, most, probably not all, of Ukraine's um, Black Sea coastline. So I think partial success for them would look like being able to do that and make it stick, uh, as well as fatally weakening the Ukrainian government. Now, at a certain level, they can't succeed at all because they've, uh, um, you know, they've first been humiliated militarily. It's very hard for them to recover that. They have profoundly motivated uh, their uh, European neighbors to oppose them, even in large measure the Germans. They'll probably get NATO expansion in the shape of the Finns and the Swedes. They've gotten the United States reengaged um, in, in Europe, uh, and they have very successfully isolated themselves from a very large part of the international economy. Not all of it, but the, the bits that really matter. And... Uh, convinced that at this point, I think it's like 300,000 of their best and brightest to leave the country. So in some ways, success is beyond them at this point. There's been a lot of ink spilled uh, for weeks now over how President Biden has handled the conflict, going back to the original press conference that took a lot of criticism uh, before the invasion, the praise he got leading up to the invasion and afterwards of the declassification of intelligence and how he used intelligence to rally pu public opinion, not just here in the U.S., but globally. But then criticism over some of his decisions to close the U.S. embassy, pull out our trainers, the dragging of the feet that's continued on some of the lethal aid uh, provisions uh, once the conflict has commenced. How do you assess the administration's performance overall, looking at it uh, from its totality? So I think it's very mixed, and unfortunately, it's uh, been going somewhat downhill. So I give them a lot of credit for the use of, uh, for the use of intelligence, uh, really releasing a lot of information. And even though that did not deter the Russian attack, what it did was first restore the credibility of American intelligence after Iraq, which is no small thing, and to really provide the basis for a unified European, and for that matter, American reaction uh, to the invasion of um, uh, the invasion of Ukraine, I'm sure it unnerved the Russians as well. So that was successful. I think the diplomacy, um, the diplomacy in the initial phase, was actually very, very effective. 
uh, held all of NATO and the EU together. Now, the Europeans obviously, you know, deserve most of the credit for that, but we, we contributed very well. And they unleashed a greater set of sanctions than I would have previously um, expected. So I think all those things are pluses. Uh, since then, though, I don't think the performance has been all that great, and it's it's really on a number of fronts. First, I think they have been slow in – well, I'll add one other thing. I mean, they made the misjudgment that most people made, uh, particularly in the intelligence community, that the Ukrainians were going to get rolled over. Um, I think I would criticize them first over the pace at which they've aided uh, Ukraine – uh, the pace, of, the speed at which they've adjusted to the fact that this wasn't going to just be an insurgency that we would feed, but really a conventional conflict, and we really needed to get these people what they wanted. We allowed ourselves to be self-deterred on things like supplying fixed-wing aircraft and tanks, and you know they were making silly distinctions between offensive and defensive weapons. I think they failed on the symbolic side of things. Um, we should not have taken our embassy out of Kiev, you would have had, I serve in the State Department. There have been plenty of State Department volunteers to stick it out. The Poles stuck it out. And we should, we should certainly be there now. Uh, our embassy should be there now. And we should have senior officials visiting Kiev. If Boris Johnson can go there, so can um, Kamala Harris. Do we favor reopening the embassy now, right. is what you're saying? I, yeah. I mean, you know, symbolism is important in uh, wartime leadership. I think they've they have been way too unwilling to consider other steps. Uh, so, for example, you know, it looks as though the Ukrainians will probably need heavy weapons from, they do need heavy weapons from the West. Um, and it probably we probably won't be able to do it alone with Soviet-designed equipment. So, in other words, they would need Western systems. Some people say, well, they won't be able to operate them. First, you know, the Ukrainians have showed themselves a clever bunch. But there are ways to get around that. You know, in uh, before World War II, before Pearl Harbor, there was something called the American Volunteer Group in China, which was flying P-40 American fighter planes provided by the United States government to China. And they were led by an Air Force uh, colonel, Claire Chenault, uh, and they had American pilots doing it, and they were all volunteers. And the U.S. government supported that. Uh, well, there, there are things like that that we could be doing. And then I think finally, I am not sure that they have the resolve to deal with what may be, unfortunately, the next big step, and that's uh, Russian use of chemical weapons. Uh, there are already some reports that the Russians may have used chemicals in Mariupol. And although I was not initially in favor of a no-fly zone, that would be the thing that for me would trigger it where you just tell the Russians, you're not allowed to fly over Ukraine, and if you do, we'll shoot you down. A lot to unpack here. You just said a lot. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> I, I, I prompts a lot of follow-up questions. Um, very provocative, especially your last comment on the no-flying zone, which I find of interest. But the, the intelligence comment you made about the recovery of our reputation on intelligence post-Iraq being very important here. And I find a tension because you're right. You know, As far as us being able to understand what a foreign adversary is thinking, might be doing. We have incredible capabilities, and we've shown that that we're right in understanding what, what, what could be next. But it also seems as though our intelligence, it's not really a capability. It, it, and it maybe it's not the IC's job. It's, it's DOD's job. It's others who are failing in our assessment of 
allies uh, and others and capabilities to perform, not just intentions uh, of actions. We saw the failure one way in Afghanistan, and we see the failure the other way almost uh, here in Ukraine. That seems to be exposing a real problem within the U.S. government. Oh, I, I think that's right. But and it's not just the U.S. government. It's the analytic uh, community more broadly. I mean, there are a lot of so-called Russian military experts, a, a group that by and large I've come to distrust profoundly, um, <laughs> outside government who you said this is all over, the Ukrainians are going to crumble. Now, there are a number of reasons for that. One is, of course, they, we didn't actually have any Ukraine experts and you do get a sense that the people who were assessing the Ukrainian military were probably not talking to the Americans, Brits, and Canadians who were training them and working most closely with them. But I think on the on the Russian side, I think you have a you had an analytic community that was fixated on numbers of equipment, on uh, the higher end bits of it, which the Russians had, although whether they could operate it and produce it and maintain it is a different question. And on Russian doctrine, which always looks elegant, uh, but, you know, as somebody pointed out, it's like playing piano, playing the piano in the air when you can look like a virtuoso until somebody sticks a real piano under your fingers. Um, and what, they, what people were not looking at was first a lot of mundane stuff, like can they do logistics, which we now see that they really can't. But, but above all, the, you know, the failure to um, absorb one of the most profound lessons of military history, which is military organizations in important ways always resemble the societies that they come from. And if you have a society that's built on lies and corruption and brutality, you're going to have a military that's dominated by lies and corruption and brutality. And in this case, it's not going to give you a very good military. So, Dr. Cohen, uh, a follow-up, and you touched on it a little bit. Um, a lot of noise out of the Biden administration and those around it that we have to really walk a tightrope here because if we step too far in one direction, we will find ourselves in the middle of a shooting war with Russia and, and in turn, World War III. What do you make of that criticism? Uh, and, and what do you think the, the option set is for the Biden administration um, who, you know, clearly none of us want to be in a, in a shooting war with Russia, but, we, you know, how realistic is that threat? How realistic is that risk? Well, Jared, Jared just to intervene before for Dr. Cohen goes forward, obviously your comment on no-fly zone, that's been the talking right. point from the right. White House resisting that in the past. Right. So um, we don't want to be in a nuclear war with Russia, but they don't want to be in a nuclear war with us. A shooting war with us, they lose because they've got a crummy military and we know it and they know it. You know, the, the um, and when I say lose, I mean, they really lose. You know, the fact that the Russian air, let's back up a bit. So the Russians got all the time in the world to prepare for this assault. They got to put their troops exactly where they wanted them on three sides of Ukraine. They got to pick the time that they were gonna do it. They even got an enemy that didn't even really believe they were gonna do it. The Ukrainians didn't think this was gonna happen. And yet they still don't have air superiority, despite all of the numerous advantages they have. That tells you something about what a terrible, um, terrible military they, they have. But, um, 
So I guess a number of thoughts. One is Vladimir Putin is a terrible strategist, but if there's one thing he's good at, it's playing head games with his adversaries. I mean, this, is a, this is a KGB regime or an FSB regime, if you want to be technically correct. And what, what are those people good at? They're good at playing head games with you. And so they have somehow got us into this position where we think, oh my God, you can't have an American shooting at a Russian because then it's thermonuclear war and it's all over. Well, let's consider a couple of facts. The Russians had thousands of advisors in North Vietnam helping North Vietnamese shoot down American airplanes. That didn't seem to cause World War III. There were Russian pilots flying against us in Korea, and they were working for Stalin. That didn't seem to cause World War III. In Syria, the Russians threw several hundred Wagner uh, mercenaries, who were basically an extension of Russian special operations forces, against a U.S. special forces outpost. Um, we whistled up the AC-130s and the Apache gunships and killed a couple hundred of them. And that didn't seem to have caused World War III. So, you know, obviously you don't want to be feckless about it, but um, they're the ones who stand to lose, not us. And it, it's, it's a terrible mistake to allow yourself to be deterred in that way, particularly when the stakes are so high. You know, if the Russians win this thing, the world turns into a really, really ugly place. It's ugly for Europe. It's ugly for what it will teach the Chinese. It's ugly for what it does to whatever norms of international behavior are left in the world. So the stakes are really high. So I'm not saying, you know, you should be feckless about it. But I, on this one, actually, I think the administration's been pusillanimous. And I, so, Dr. Cohen, I have a follow-up on that because you did cite a couple of uh, interesting and sort of lesser-known uh, Cold War history anecdotes. My, I guess my question, and, and even going back to what you talked about with the Flying Tigers, the American forces in, in China during the Second World War, um, it somehow feels like this is different, right? That, that this is front and center, center stage, where this would not be um, discreet in any way, shape, or form, where some of the anecdotes that you cited either weren't reported until way after the fact, uh, weren't in the mainstream media, and in this case... If, if the American government decided to intervene in some kind of a more concrete way, like with a no-fly zone, it would be impossible for Vladimir Putin to save face uh, short of nuclear weapons. Save and face I, with, well, I don't accept that. Okay, first, well, that, that, that's the question for you. <laughs> so, so look, first thing, people knew about the flying tigers. I mean, they were heroes, you know? They had the flying these airplanes with teeth on them, um, or at least teeth painted on. Um, we knew about the Russian advisors in North Vietnam. That wasn't a secret. When we, you know, slaughtered those guys from the Wagner group, that was in the newspaper the next day. And actually, what we also published were the radio transmissions uh, uh, among themselves when they said, oh my God, you know, the Americans are just slaughtering us. So none of these things were secret. Um, and let's remind ourselves, Ukraine is a sovereign nation. It's, this isn't talking about, you know, invading Russia or anything like that. This is a sovereign nation, which we would be helping to uh, defend. And why should we accept the Russian, you know, it's the Russian position, not our position, that it's illegitimate 
for us to help a sovereign nation that they recognized. You know, it, it's, it, it, it is quite astonishing to me the extent to which we let ourselves be cowed into believing their story. I've personally never understood why the administration closed the embassy, took our personnel out of Kiev, took our trainers out. This We were there at the invitation of a democratic nation, uh, an ally of the United States. And you know what? It's on Vladimir Putin then if he wants to start World War III and target U.S. personnel in Kiev or something like that. I don't, I don't know why we have to play this game. But I, my, my question is really, is this... You've been watching this for, for a long, long time, and you've seen the ebb and flow, and you've studied the ebb and flow in history uh, in foreign policy attitudes in, in the Washington establishment. Is this a democratic phenomenon right now? Is this a pox on both houses, this uh, self-deterrence, uh, this uh, you know deterring ourselves out of escalation, the fear of escalation strangling us from the ability to actually deter our enemies? Um. So, as, as your listeners may know, I am a politically homeless person. Uh, I was one of the original Never Trump Republicans, uh, and I've not repented that for a moment. Uh, but, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't be a Democrat either. There, was, there, are, there have been elements of that before. You know, I saw it when I was in government um, and when I was counselor of the Department of State in the Bush administration. We deterred ourselves from beating up on the Iranians when they were sending operatives over the border to kill our people. You know, there are a lot of graves in Arlington Cemetery that are filled with young men and women who were killed by explosively formed projectile um, IEDs that were manufactured by the Quds Force and in some cases implanted by them. And there was just this terrible hesitation about doing anything to make the Iranians pay a price for it. In some way, we kind of let ourselves be self-deterred for really holding the Pakistanis to account when they were supporting the Haqqani network against our own people. Now, I think the Democrats have been worse in this respect. I mean, I think we're only now, I think, beginning to fully understand how terrible the Obama administration was. You know, but then again, after the Trump administration, the Republicans aren't in much of a position to complain about people being soft on Vladimir Putin. Um, So... You know, I think, unfortunately, I think what's happened is we've passed through a period of weak presidential leadership, weak or bizarre uh, presidential leadership. Um, And leadership, as we see in Ukraine, makes a difference. You know, if it wasn't for Vladimir Zelensky, we probably wouldn't be having this this conversation. And unfortunately, we've had we've had weak or ineffectual or crazy leadership for quite quite some time. Now, I think, you know, Biden actually is innately a much tougher guy than Obama was. And I think his instincts in many cases are okay. Like when he said Putin's a war criminal, you know, he shouldn't let his staff walk him back. He is a war criminal. You know, don't be afraid of saying it. Um, and I think it's, I guess... You know, I I do think part of it has to do with the kind of policy intellectual class that end up filling a lot of positions in government. Um, You know, they're used to slinging phrases around and and so on. But this is a war and you need people who think in kind of warlike ways. Um, And it's a war in which in many ways 
you know, indirectly, we are most definitely engaged. Jared, I know you have a follow-up. I just want to have one comment, which is uh, I, I love seeing that chattering class who's been, you know, for the pivot to Asia for all these years, quote unquote, you know, get out of the Middle East, get out of Europe, you know, China, China, China. And after Afghanistan and doing nothing and watching Kabul fall, they said, oh, this has no implications for Taiwan, China. Yeah. And now after after Russia, you know, it's like, oh, you know, this has no implications for, for, for China and Taiwan. It's like, guys, do you get it? Like, if you're afraid of, of escalation yeah. here, if you were es- afraid of escalation last fall, what do you think is going to happen if we have to defend Taiwan? I think that, look, you're, you are 100% correct. It's why the stakes are enormously high. The Chinese are watching this. Now, I'm sure they'll be saying, well, the, the Americans can't do to us what they've done uh, to the Russians. But, but, you know, like all great powers, they'll be taking the measure of our commitment and resolve um, and ruthlessness. And all that stuff matters profoundly. And we, we need to be very much aware of it. You know, I, look, I, I also think you know, China is the big problem of the future. But, uh, you know, a grand strategy of shifting to Asia, you know, it's to, I've, I've got a piece coming out in Foreign Affairs uh, in a month or so, the point of which will be, among other things, that uh, you know everybody has a grand strategy until Vladimir Putin invades Ukraine. It's kind of like Mike Tyson. Everybody's got a plan until somebody punches you in the mouth. So we got punched in the mouth, um, and so we've got to we've got to adjust, and we and we have to see we have to see the problems holistically, understanding that what we do in Europe will have effect in China. I'll say one other thing along these lines. I was at the uh, the Munich Security Conference just before the war broke out. And I was talking to a uh, terrific friend of mine who's a very senior Ukraine, um, Australian official. And he said, you know, who is very, very much engaged in the Ukraine issue. And he said to me, you know, my country has faced an existential threat only once in 1942. And that's because the Asian security order broke down. And the Asian security order broke down because the European security order broke down. Right, and I just thought that was incredibly perceptive. So, Dr. Cohen, I know we're going to talk about uh, your critique, your much uh, publicized critique of President Obama's book in a minute. Um, but I wouldn't, but I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't ask you about um, what culpability the Trump presidency bears on allowing unchecked Putin hegemony and sort of precipitating where we find ourselves today. What, to what degree does the Trump administration and their soft on Putin stance, um, you know, did it enable what we're, what we're seeing? So, so today? you say, so you say, so, so I, I say, so I say, I didn't see that in the administration when I was yeah. there, but yeah, so, yeah, so I'll, 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 uh, yeah, after agreeing with you, Richard, you may not particularly like the answer to this okay. one. <laughs> and by the way, guys, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to go on all this as long as you want, but this is the Jewish insider. At some point, do we do the Jewish stuff, too? Oh, absolutely. Anyway, we're going we're gonna to shift to that in a minute. It's coming. It's okay. coming. Okay. So on, on Trump, yeah, no, I, I do think um, in, in several ways. First, I mean, the Trump administration was very peculiar in that it was a little bit like 18th century France, you know, where the king had one foreign policy 
and the you know, foreign policy establishment of the time had a different foreign policy, sometimes diametrically opposed. And you know, I think it's fair to say that a lot of the, you know, the sort of the H.R. McMasters and John Boltons of this world who were actually resolutely anti-Russian, uh, Trump was not. Trump was pro-Putin. The damage that he did was in several parts. First, I think most profoundly in undermining people's confidence in our leadership. That you know, we had this wacko as a president who was clearly personally quite sympathetic to Putin and still is. Um, and that really made people doubt our sanity. They didn't like George W. Bush, but they didn't think he was a lunatic. And they didn't think that he was really profoundly sympathetic to a monster of this kind. So that's one thing. But I think the other thing is muscling Ukraine the way he did and trying to hold up armed supplies and all those other things. Now, you know, ultimately, I think the Obama administration did more damage specifically in terms of Ukraine. But there's no question in my mind, Trump did a lot of damage. And thank God he lost, because I think John Bolton is right. He would have tried to take us out of NATO. Um, and that would have been truly catastrophic. I do want you to just uh, unpack a little bit more on, on the Obama administration policy, uh, if you will, for Jared, of course, who served there. Uh, you recently did a review of President Obama's latest memoir, and on Russia, you wrote, quote, Obama notes that he viewed Russian President Vladimir Putin as just like a Chicago ward boss, just with nuclear weapons and a veto on the U.N. Security Council, rather than something of an altogether different scale and set of motivations. And you, I think you just tweeted this week, given that we now see the scope of the disaster of his Russia and Ukraine policy, it was even worse than I make it out to be. Yes. Uh, unpack that just a little for us. Uh, so I wrote this review of Obama's memoir, which, um, you know, is, I mean, it's an interesting memoir because I do think he wrote it himself, which is not the case with most presidential memoirs. Um uh, which at least rely heavily on a ghostwriter. Um, and it's unintentionally very revealing, and I think in a completely uncomplimentary way. I, th there, you know, there is, even in that judgment, this kind of condescending, patronizing view of Putin. Oh, I've dealt with that type before. I, I know what they're like. Uh, there's no sense of menace, which there most certainly should be. And that's quite apart from the fact that he doesn't accept responsibility for any of the failures, the red line in Syria that wasn't a red line, you know, the handling of Crimea, none of that. He, he just refuses to accept any, and he still does. And, you know, I, he, I recently saw him on uh, television, some, you know, and he blames the Europeans for the handling of Ukraine. And it's just, that's just not right. I mean, he, you know, people look to the United States to lead. They still do. And um, his, so much of his administration was about an abnegation of American international leadership, uh, particularly in, in Europe. And, you know, as for the attitude towards the Europeans himself, you know, as I've been telling European friends, you know, the Obama administration on Europe was basically just, you know, Trump was the same thing, just with really bad manners. They had a similar view of the Europeans, of European security, um, and so on. So it's a terrible book. I wouldn't read it uh, unless you really want to kind of get into the Obama administration. It, it, is, it, is a, 
it is an extremely arrogant and condescending book which in which he doesn't really he sort of pretends to hold himself to account but he really doesn't to try to shift gears a little bit and uh, bridge from our russia ukraine conversation into the middle east uh one of the interesting subplots that's been going on here is obviously the disruption to the oil market uh, in response to uh, U.S. sanctions, European sanctions, anticipation of additional sanctions, and yet the inability to go all in on our sanctions, it seems, or an unwillingness to, to risk the instability in the market, while U.S. officials have been asking Saudi Arabia to help swing supply as they have in the past to try to stabilize the market, allowing for tougher sanctions, those requests have been rejected. Uh, and it has a sense of potentially a backfiring of their Iran policy for a year, the delisting of the Houthis last year, the potential to delist the IRGC, the Iran negotiations, going after MBS in a very harsh way early on. Do you sort of see that uh, coming to play here? Uh, opponents of MBS would say, look, and this is what we said, we can't trust them, they're siding with Russia. But supporters of the U.S.-Saudi relationship would say, listen, it's time for the White House to wake up and, and come to its senses here. I, I think there's an element of truth to that. I mean, the, the mistake, the big mistake that we made, for me, the one that's more concerning, just because it tells you how much alienation there is, is the UAE. You know, which had really been quite a reliable ally. And the, you know, the fundamental problem is we had allies, and Saudi Arabia is a really problematic one. UAE, much less so, which were directly attacked. You know, they had missiles raining down on their territory, and basically we did nothing. I think in the case of UAE, it took like 37 days for the CENTCOM commander to show up and say, "Can we help?" And you know, they don't—they're not going to forget that. Now, I, I don't carry a brief for, you know, petro-monarchies in the Middle East. But I also think that the idea, which I think both Obama and Trump believed in, which is that we should disengage from the Middle East, purely and simply are going to work. Um, I do think this is what happens when the United States is not seen as a re reliable security partner. And they need us as a reliable security partner. More broadly, and, and I agree. I mean, we, you know, we need to come to terms with them in some way, um, although I think it's okay to mix that with a little bit of coercion as well. I mean, I, in general, I think the American approach to foreign policy is going to have to be uh, a combination of leadership and arm twisting uh, of a kind that we haven't really, um, we haven't been willing to do as much as we should. Um, on oil, I think, you know, what's going to happen is over time, uh, you're going to see the market react in a variety of ways. And this always happens. The price of oil goes up. Turns out there's a lot more reserves all around the world. But even beyond that, what's going to happen is um, we are entering a different energy regime, whether it's renewables or natural gas or, you know, wild new technologies like fusion. And by the way, the Russians are going to be in a difficult place because they have not been investing really in infrastructure. More and more of their oil is going to be produced in the north of the country. They're going to need Western technology to access that, and they're not going to get it. Uh, so Russia is going to diminish. But, but there are loads of, quite apart from oil, there are loads of other sanctions that we should be piling on. So both fiscal sanctions, but for me, the key thing is like secondary sanctions. 
I mean, we should be telling companies, we should tell, I don't know, Nestle, for example, you have a choice. You can do business in Russia or you can do business in the United States. It's your pick. And, and that's the kind of hardball that for some reason we've gotten out of the habit of playing, and I don't think we should have. Dr. Cohen, a question about Israel as it relates to the Ukraine-Russia conflict. They, they've gotten a lot of heat in some quarters for uh, walking a tightrope here. Some say for, you know, with the possibility of being uh, an intermediary here. And some say that they just sort of can't commit and can't take a side. Uh, what, what do you make of, of that criticism in either direction? And what do you think their role is vis-a-vis this conflict? Look, there's one understandable Israeli interest, which is they want to be able to operate in Syria against Iran. They've, uh, I think they now say they've conducted 400 airstrikes. I wouldn't be surprised if it's more, plus special operations. And they deconflict that with the Russians. Um, and so they have a, a national security interest in having a relationship with Russia that's good enough so that they can go schwack the Iranians in Syria. That is understandable. Um, there is an interest, though, that they have in Jewish oligarchs. That's not understandable. And, you know, you saw it in, for example, Yad Vashem being really reluctant to condemn this invasion. And, you know, there are echoes of World War II and the things that we're seeing and the, the cities leveled and the massacres and, you know. Um, and that's shameful. There's a lot of dirty Russian money in Israel, unfortunately. Um, and then there's, you know, there's a moral imperative. Uh, you know, the Bible says, you're not supposed to stand by your neighbor's blood. And so when you see the things that you see, you're supposed to say something. That's a Jewish value. Even if you can't do anything. Now, I think they've finally gotten to a better place. Yair Lapid has said some of the right things, um, acknowledging who's been committing the atrocities. And there is some humanitarian aid that's flowing. But it took them a while to get there, and I don't think it was the finest hour for Russian foreign policy. As for intermediaries, when the time comes, there'll be plenty of intermediaries. But at the moment, that's not... Vladimir Putin is not looking for intermediaries right now. He's looking for a win. I want to move into Iran a little bit because you brought it up uh, with the Syria context. Um, but, but I will say on your, your note on secondary sanctions, I've, I've been calling for that for weeks since the beginning. Uh, because I, I've seen this before, whether it's Israel or it's India or it's others, uh, the diplomats are always in a position of being squeezed. They have all their own national security interests that they're trying to weigh. When we impose secondary sanctions, that's it. The private sector says, "I choose the United States," yeah, and the no, diplomats, it, you know, the diplomats get demarched. They get demarched by the Russians. They say, "Ah, oh, listen, let's let's keep talking about Syria. Our companies have to comply with U.S. sanctions." Yeah. And the, this is what happens when you're afraid of secondary sanctions, as as this administration seems to be, because you're dictating to the world. You can't be dictated. This is America first. If we do, if we do secondary sanctions, that's what I think the reluctance is. But, but on Iran. Um, I want to take, get your take on, on what's going on right now. Interestingly, I, I found a Wall Street Journal uh, piece you did back in 2009, and I read it twice because I was like, wow, this could be written today. It really could be. Um, just after Iran's second covert enrichment site was revealed to the world, you wrote the following in the journal. Quote, 
Pressure, be it gentle or severe, will not erase that nuclear program. The choices are now what they ever were, an American or an Israeli strike, which would probably cause a substantial war or living in a world with Iranian nuclear weapons, which may also result in war, perhaps nuclear, over a longer period of time. You go on to say, it is therefore in the American interest to break with past policy and actively seek the overthrow of the Islamic Republic, not by invasion, but through every instrument of U.S. power, soft, more than hard, end quote. And so my question is, a lot has changed since then, 2009. Central Bank of Iran sanctions from Congress, other sanctions, 2011, 2012. We get into negotiations over the JCPOA. We get out of the JCPOA, maximum pressure, which to some people was something like that sort of soft power mode of the victory strategy of the Reagan administration. And then we have now what's been going on, which I call maximum deference. People can call it whatever they want. Uh, do you still feel the same way? Are you still in that sort of mode that, that really all we can well, rely I, on? I, is, is... You know, I was in a peculiar position. I thought the JCPOA was a terrible agreement. I thought it was a mistake to leave it because uh, I don't think we had a well-thought-out alternative. And now I think it's a terrible mistake to try to recreate it the way the administration wants to. I think the problem does, um, it's nice to have a quote, which, you know, from uh, a number of years back where you don't sound like an idiot. Um, the, you know, I think the problem does remain that the Iranians will not voluntarily give up the nuclear program. When I was a... Um, at a, when I was counselor of the State Department, I kept a um, Iranian banknote on my desk, which if you held it up to the light, you could see the watermark was the sign of an atom right over Natanz. Well, that tells you something about the level of commitment. Um, I, and so I, I don't think there's any way to negotiate them out of it. I think, the, and they will cheat and, and, and all that. Um, I also don't think the United States is prepared to conduct military action. The Israelis may be, and the Israelis may be very much in cooperation with uh, their Arab allies. And that's the, th that's the thing that has changed since then, that you have the Abraham Accords, um, you know, they, you have these confabulations of foreign ministers. I suspect there's a confabulation of defense ministers and chiefs of staff that you don't hear about. Um, which is probably ultimately more significant. I do think there's an... I mean, the thing that's odd is I think Biden is more skeptical about an Iran deal than some of his advisors, particularly Robert Malley, who's doing the negotiation, who's, I believe, is ideologically committed to this. And there's also... There's a phenomenon which the two of you may have seen in government, which is, um, you know, you fall in love with your policy, and, and you just don't want to admit that that policy failed or that it may have been a dog to begin with. It's just that you didn't know it was a dog. Um, and I think something like that's happened here. They, they've fallen in love with the policy. So, so Rich and I spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about Iran and Iran policy. You wouldn't know it for the first half an hour, but but it's true. I know, I know, and good for you, Rich, for you know for being able to hold back that long. But you know, I I you know I'm I'm multidimensional. You just don't know it. <laughs> we digress, Professor. You've literally uh, lived this and done this, and this is your life's work. Um, what do you think the end game is? If you were if you were in the room with President Biden, uh, and he said, Professor. What do we do from here when it comes to Iran policy with, with what you just said as prologue? What's the next move? 
So a, a couple of things. I'd probably begin by saying, uh, quoting what Lincoln is reported to have said to uh, Secretary of State Seward, who was thinking about whether we should go to war with uh, with Great Britain. So one war at a time, Mr. Seward, one war at a time. Um, you know, I think that the fact is that the, that the Ukraine war is at the moment the more pressing issue. Um, I also think, you know, in and I've thought a lot about how you give policy advice. You can only advise. You should only advise people to do things which is kind of within their performance range. Um, so I think you know. I would say I think your instinct is right that a no deal is better than a bad deal because I think that is his instinct. Um, and I would try to return to the maximum pressure policy with a view to really putting crippling pressures on the regime, plus doing whatever other sneaky stuff one can do to speed up the overthrow, its overthrow. Um, but I, there's no guarantee that it'll work. And I think I would probably say to him, there is a chance that you'll wake up one day and find that the Israelis, in collaboration with uh, the Emiratis and the Saudis and maybe some other Arab states, have launched a preemptive attack of some kind. And in that case, I'd say be prepared to be supportive. Dr. Cohen, you, you did want some very Jewish insider questions. So, so we, we do have those prepared as well before we close. Uh, there have been some great stories over the years uh, from observant Jews in government and foreign policy. Uh, we, we think of stories of Barack Obama telling Jack Lew, hey, it's almost Shabbos, you need to go home. Joe Which, Lee by the way, home. I was in the room for. I've heard actually, the actually happened. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, I heard the story from you. That's it. That's actually happened. Uh, Joe Lieberman walking to votes uh, for the Capitol. Um, uh, reflections you have in your own experiences in government uh, as a foreign policy leader, some, some fun anecdotes that our li listeners might like. Well, I mean, the first thing I would say is um, and it's, a, it's a wonderful thing about the United States, including the Jack Lew story. Uh, I never encountered anything but respect for religious observance. And we're um, modern Orthodox-ish. Um, kids all, I went to a day school, my kids gone to day school, now my grandchildren are going to day schools. Um, and, you know, I actually talked to our rabbi about it before I went in about, you know, keeping a Blackberry with me on Shabbat, and I did. Um, and there were a couple of times when I had to go into the office on Shabbat, even, you know, that even on um, Rosh Hashanah once. Um, the, uh, um, that was for me the most, it, it, it was, um, I wish I could tell you funny, well, the only funny anecdote was, so I used to travel a lot with um, Doug Lute, who was the Deputy National Security Advisor sure. for uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. And he had a wonderful Marine colonel working for him. And, you know, we were planning out the first of the trips, which we would take really at least once a quarter. And I said, well, listen, by the way, you know, I, I'm to basically treat me like a vegetarian, would you? So if just make sure that there's meat. Uh, you really don't want to be eating fish in the middle of Afghanistan. Um, it's just, I said, just, you know, it could be pasta. I, I really don't care. Canned tuna fish or something. By God. He was going to make sure that I had kosher TV dinners. And I, it, no matter where we were, and I've got this great picture of myself holding up 
one of these truly awful kosher TV dinners you can buy uh, that's been irradiated beyond any taste in the Kyber Pass. You know, and I just had this feeling that I am the, I must be the only person alive who's clutching a kosher TV dinner looking, you know, across the border there at the, the, uh, at the Kyber Pass. But for the most part, it was, you know, it was other things. It was, you know, going to um, George W. Bush's Hanukkah party. The idea, a Hanukkah party. A Hanukkah party in, in the White House. I mean, what's, what's that? And it, um, the whole story, you know, my experience in government reaffirmed my patriotism, you know. Um, when I was sworn in, I quoted uh, George Washington's wonderful letter to the Jewish congregation in Newport, which is where my younger daughter um, was born and named um, at the Turo Synagogue, um, about the fact that in the United States, it's, uh, it's not an act of indulgence that you have equal rights. It's your right. That's a staggering thing for the Jewish people. There are only two countries in the world where the rights of Jews were not a gift or an indulgence, but just a right. One is Israel, one's the United States. And that's a powerful thing, and we should never forget it. Dr. Cohen, I'll tell you one follow-up there. The reason why General Lute was so good about getting you kosher food is that his wife, Jean Lute, oh, my sure. good yeah. friend, the deputy secretary, was a nice Jewish girl from Newark, New Jersey. And, uh, a, tough, and, a tough Jewish girl. Very tough. You should try working for her. I love her, but I, don't oh, get I, it. I, I, I can imagine. They've, they've been over at our house for a Seder. So. <laughs> I, I will also note that if anybody out there has deployed or is in a theater where you have to get kosher MREs, and I've been there before in Afghanistan, um, you definitely want to try to get people to ship you the no refrigeration needed uh, Mon Cuisine type foods. Um, uh, you know, they're so much better uh, than the actual kosher MREs from La Briute. We will probably lose La Briute sponsorship if we ever had it. That's <laughs> it, stuff it, where it, you it like. Was, it was La Briute. Oh, it was yeah, so terrible. That's that's bad. That's. Yeah. I'm sorry. That was inedible. It I mean, was inedible. I wrote home. I was like screaming, like, please send me something. I'll tell you one other story, which is it's actually my son's story. My oldest son is on active duty for four and a half years. He's still in the reserves. He was in a. Commissioned as an infantry officer, then went on to the uh, to do other things. Uh, but he went to ranger school, and in the army he encountered some anti-Semitic characters and comments because one does. I mean, in any walk of life, I mean, I had to deal with John Mearsheimer. Um, but he went to ranger school. He was, as frequently happens, recycled in the middle of the mountain phase of, you know, hypothermia. They had to extract the toenails. It was miserable. So they're fattening him up in the relief camp before they put him through the cycle again. And he's going through the mess hall, and the mess sergeant sees that he's not eating any meat. And he says, what's the matter? You don't like the food? And he said, no, Ranger Sergeant, I'm, I keep kosher, so I can't eat the meat. Next day, the guy... Turns out, overnight, drove 50 miles to Atlanta to get him some kosher hot dogs. Just simple sergeant. Um, so, no, there are other stories as well. And let's, you know, not, uh, I don't want to romanticize things too much, but 
American Jews sometimes forget what a precious thing we've got in this country. Dr. Cohen, that is a perfect segue to our lightning round, where we're going to ask you a couple more questions uh, just to get a little bit more sense of who you are for our listeners. The first one is, do you have a favorite Yiddish word or phrase? And profanity is totally okay as long as it's in Yiddish. You should die and be reincarnated as a chandelier to hang by day and burn by night. Wow, that is that's an inaugural one here on the Jewish Insider podcast. Wow, wow. Okay, we're gonna have to learn that one. I'm gonna have to repeat. Yeah. That's a seder. Wow. That's now put that in your haggadah. Okay, yeah. that that'll be there. Okay, next uh, next question. Speaking of, of Pesach, any favorite Passover memories or unique family traditions? Uh, we read a letter that my father wrote to my mother. My dad was in the occupation army. He was a psychiatrist. He was shipped over just as the war was ending. Um, and he was my mother. He was in love with my mother. He was a, in her late teens, and they absolutely were married for almost fifty years. No, more than fifty years. Uh, and he's writing this letter. He was from a very secular background, although quite Jewish, uh, but very secular. And he's describing going to a Seder with displaced persons. And he's astounded by the stories he's hearing. And he says, you know, I couldn't help but think there but for the grace of God when I. So we read that every Pesach of the Seder. All right. I'm told, Dr. Cohen, that uh, I'm supposed to ask you what our fa- your favorite Scottish clan and favorite Scottish folk song is. I, I don't have a favorite clan, but the favorite song is Killy Cranky. Where have you been, so broad lad? Where have you been, say, so Brankio? Where have you been, so broad lad? Came you by Killy Crankio. There you go. There you go, Jared. You got there your you go. answer. Now, now, now I know. All right. You have one last, All right, one last question. Last question. Uh, why? You should listen to the Corey. You should listen to the version that's sung by the Corys. Uh, I grew up with a lot of different CDs of, of nice uh, old uh, Scottish folk songs. As as a, a son of a son of Edinburgh, uh, we we oh. we were lavished with that in our home. What's your favorite uh, Scotch? Uh, personally, Lagavulin. I do, Mac- I do McAllen 18. Lagavulin wins. Ooh. There you go. And if the Iranians now like start sending me bottles randomly in the mail of Lagavulin, I'll I'll know not to open them. So that's yep. so that's good now. I just I've just ruined my favorite. <laughs> I should have said something like black label or something. Uh, okay, why bow ties over neckties? So I um, early on in my career, I was running the Air Force's study of the first Gulf War, and I was wearing a necktie. Um, and I had to shred some classified waste, and I was fitting it into the shredder, and I looked down, and I realized that I was about a half an inch away of being turned into a pile of bloody mulch. <laughs> and so after that, I decided on bow ties, and then afterwards, it just became kind of a gesture of defiance towards the Washington establishment. 
Well, Christopher Ford, if you're listening, that is a good reason to wear a bow tie. Now, what is yours? That that That's the real question now. Okay. Dr. Elliot Cohen, thank you so much for joining us on Jewish Insiders Limited, Li- Limited Liability Podcast. Uh, it's been a great interview. It's been wonderful being with you and Chag Kashev And to you. And to you. Wow. What a great interview, Rich. You know, I, I always love a guest who has uh, equal ability to trash Republican and Democratic presidents and their foreign policies and makes me know that there is there are truly bipartisan people out there in this world still. Well, it was a fun interview, but it was also a pretty crucial and, and timely interview. I think uh, people should definitely take to heart uh, some of uh, his recommendations on Ukraine. Uh, I agree with him on a lot of that on Iran. Uh, we're at we're at a crossroads here on some big foreign policy decisions and, and the future, not just of the United States, uh, but of uh, the Western liberal international order, as they call it, and what will become of it. Uh, I also want to say that I know I just said Mon Cuisine was my no refrigeration needed meals, but actually they were Meal Mart, come to think of it. They were Meal Mart. So I do love you, Mon Cuisine, but Meal Mart, thank you for what you do and for your no refrigeration needed MREs. And by far and away, the best limited liability podcast, Yiddish word or phrase by a guest, by far, by a mile. Um, and we will have that on on, on the website. Uh, get, get over to jewishinsider.com. You, you will find the transcript, and we will make sure to have that highlighted exactly. So if you need it for your Seder, you want to use it, uh, it'll be available, very, very accessible. Yeah, and if anybody wants to tweet me a Devar Torah or something smart, I could say at my, my Seder, uh, just feel free to tweet at the podcast or tweet at Jewish Insider. We're looking for good suggestions. Anyway, if you like this show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast, wishing everyone a kosher and happy Passover. Chag Sameach. Thanks for listening.